Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders, having one heck of a morning. I got up and had my podcast all planned out. I was basically sitting down just doing the notes for it. I decided I was going to do a review of the Afana Pelma genus. So I sat down, started taking all my notes, and this has happened to me before too, honestly. Got everything ready. Billy's like, you're ready to do your podcast because she goes out shopping when I do the podcast. And I'm like, you know what, let me just double check my, you know, the episodes that I've done and make sure that I didn't do one for it. So I went through the first time, didn't see anything of Anapelma. And, but I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I, I was thinking I might have done it before. So I go back through the list again. And sure enough, I had done one like a year and a half ago or so. So <laughs> kind of, and I've done this before as well. For those of you who've been following for a while or been catching up on episodes, I actually did a, I believe it was Peace Letheria Genus Review. And then like a year later, almost to the date, I was like, I should do a Peace Letheria Genus Review and did a whole entire new one. Well, to make this even sillier, when I went to post up the newer version of the video, I hadn't realized that I had done it before, so I reposted the old version of the video. So anybody that's gone through and been wondering about that, and I have a couple of people like, hey, did you realize you posted the same episode twice? Yeah, I wasn't intentionally doing reruns. That should have been a newer, updated version of it. Granted, I was screwing up where I was already doing the same topic I had done before, but I did think I added some new wrinkles to it and add some new things. But no, I end up posting the same exact one up. So if that ever happens, feel free to call me out on it. The problem is we're up to, I think we've done like 140 episodes now or 130 episodes, something like that. And I do the videos as well. And I sometimes mix up what I've covered in one thing and not in the other. So now I've been a little, care- a little more careful. I'm glad I did this. It stinks because I had some really cool things to say about Afana Pelma, but I will go back and re-listen to the other one. And if I feel like it's worth repeating and adding to, then I will do it because I have gotten some questions about them. Plus, I was just on the Fear Not Tarantulas website a few moments ago, and it looks like they have some species I have never heard of before as, fauna- uh, as far as Afana Pelma. I believe they just got in a huge import from Mexico. And they are now offering uh, Fauna Pelma species Bosque Primavera. Sounds like a dish. Mm. Uh, Fauna Pelma species Diamondback and a Fauna Pelma species Tamaulipas. Butchered that one. Anyway, they look amazing. And I'm on that. I've been trying to collect all the different Fauna Pelma species I've seen. So I'll probably try to get in on those. So there's an example of my research ending up me cost, uh, costing me money because as I was doing the notes for the Afana Pelma species genus review I was going to do in this podcast, a lot of people are, will ask after I post something up, hey, I've been looking for this species. I've been looking for this species. So I started looking at, to see who was carrying Afana Pelma and ended up spending some time on her page realizing, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of spiders here I'd really like to have. So for those of you that, that give me a hard time sometimes about costing you money because I'm always showing new spiders, I sometimes do it to myself. So there we go. So on top of it, I don't know if it's coming out in the microphone. Hopefully, I'll be able to scrub it out later. But some there's some type of construction going on the road by me, and they're drilling something. So intermittently, I hear this drilling sound in the background. It's coming through my earphones. Hopefully, it's faint enough that when I do the noise cancellation on this, it cancels it out. But I apologize in advance if you're listening to this at a high volume and you hear an annoying drilling sound in the background. That's the... the only issue I have with the podcast, again, is unlike the videos, videos are a little easier with the sound because there's video there. You can kind of dazzle people and they won't realize your your sound is as bad as it is. With the podcast, you're kind of stuck with what you get. So today, what we're going to be talking about is Carabina Versicolor. A lot of folks lately have been I mean, talking about switching gears. I was I was thinking about doing this one, decided to do a Fauna Pelma because I was feeding my Fauna Pelmas, and then we're just going to switch back to this one. But I get more questions about this species. I, I, I would say next to the question, 
am I ready for old worlds? The next biggest question as far as keepers that are trying to feel their way through the hobby and figure out if they're ready for something is, do you think I should get a Carabina Versicolor? There's, I don't want to say stigma around them, but there is, you know, they are one of the species, and I think we're going to be really realistic in this one because there's like the PC things we say when we talk in the hobby, and there's certain things we're not supposed to like allude to. And one of them has been like the Carabina Versicolors, for years have had a reputation for being very fragile, for being very difficult to keep. And what happened was we had this thing called SAD, Sudden Avicularia Death Syndrome. And for those who aren't aware, the Caribbean Versicolor used to be under Avicularia. They changed the name a couple years back. So it fell in this category. And SADS was basically the unexplained deaths. It seemed like with Avicularia species, you had more unexplained deaths than you did with other tarantula species. A lot of folks would report stories of picking up spiderlings or spiders or getting them pet stores. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But basically, they would keep them. They thought they were keeping them correctly, and then they would mysteriously die. Slings were dying all over the place. Some of the older specimens, juveniles, adults picked up from pet stores, whatever it may be, they were dying. So part of that was due to the fact that we started to figure out that we were keeping them incorrectly. We saw that they were coming from a region where there was a lot of rainfall. The idea was they must be moisture dependent. They need a lot of moisture. They're up in the, you know, basically in the trees. And when you set them up, this is a true arboreal species where it's going to spend, you know, unless there's something wrong with it, it's going to spend its time up off the ground. And to try to increase the humidity in these enclosures, what people were doing was filling them with moist substrate, spraying them down repeatedly. You look at old care sheets, is why I hate care sheets and care pages. They would just squirt the snot out of them. So it'd be like, make sure you spray it morning, noon, and night. Make sure it's nice and moist. Well, what would happen is between that and between the fact that they would have enclosures that weren't very well ventilated, either ventilated from the top or they would block ventilation to prevent the moisture from escaping, you would create a death trap for these guys. What people weren't taking into consideration is that in the wild, they are living in trees where there's a nice coastal breeze that blows through the trees, keeps the air circulating, keeps the air fresh, and they don't have to worry about being in stagnant enclosures. So what we were doing is creating little death traps with them while trying to provide them that moisture. So what happened is some folks decided to switch things up a little bit and keep them on the drier side with water dishes. You know, they might spray once or twice a week to give them a chance to drink off the side of the enclosure. And they found that they did much better in those setups. I got mine years ago, and I remember seeing them thinking they were beautiful. They were on beginner's list, but there was always that caveat that they, they're very difficult to keep. And I've admitted to this before. When I picked up mine, it was like as soon as I got her, I was just I just assumed I was going to kill her. Like I, I did not. I probably shouldn't have got her when I did because I lacked the confidence, obviously, wherein I picked up the spider. I got her in. I checked on this spider so darn much when I first got her. It was ridiculous because I was just... Uh, everything I've read had said they're so fragile and I was fairly new to keeping slings. I was very new to keeping slings and I was afraid it was going to kill her. And luckily I got in touch with somebody on arachnoboards that had raised them before. And they're like, listen, forget about what this says about the moisture, you know, put a little water dish in there, keep them mostly dry, maybe a moist corner. If you want, sprinkle some water on the webbing before nighttime because he goes, they come out at night and that's when they'll get a drink. He goes, but don't th keep things overly moist. I ended up keeping mine in one of the Jamie's Arboreal Sling enclosures. And somebody just asked me about those, which have a little vent in the front. So it's not full cross ventilation. That should be made very clear. And I've had some folks that pick those up and they put more holes in the side. And I think that's prudent. But it did seem to allow enough airflow that it never got super moist in there. I remember in the wintertime freaking out because it was getting very dry in the tarantula room. 
And I was like, should I add water? Should I? And I held back. I would keep a moist corner of substrate. I would sprinkle a little water, like, just like the guy told me, sprinkle a little water on the webbing before nighttime. She did fine. She grew up. I obviously, we bred her. We had babies with her. I have her baby, one of her babies still left. Uh, just awesome spiders. However, back to the, you know, the PC part, once we figured out the care of them, I do think that we killed off fewer spiders. I think once we got the care under control and we had a better idea about it, it seemed like you get less people killing them off by accidentally because of those stuffy enclosures. However, I still get emails all the time about people who pick them up that they suddenly die. And in some cases, unfortunately, I do think it's because there is enough of that information out there still saying that they require a lot of moisture that it, it's still, you can still, if you search, you can find something out there that says Caribbean Versica or make sure you keep them moist or moisture dependent. And as evidence of that, I still have people to this day who will email me or message me and say, I've got my Caribbean Averse color. I don't know what's wrong with it. It doesn't seem to be doing well. It's not webbing. I have its substrate nice and wet. I spray it down. It's like, oh gosh, here we go. Or I'll get somebody that will read one of my care guides or see my care video and they'll go, hey, you know, I'm just wondering, I've read that these guys need to be kept really moist, but you're saying in your video that they need to be kept dry. What's the deal? So obviously there is still that misinformation out there. So that could still be contributing to some of the deaths. But that said, I have had some instances recently where people have picked them up as slings. They're raising them. They send me an email, Tom, I just want to know what I did wrong here. It died and they send me pictures and it's like the exact enclosure I would use. It's the exact setup I would use. There's not a lot of moisture in it, you know, unless they're not telling me the whole story and I don't see any point of somebody like, you know, having the enclosure all moist, the spider dies and then they present a dry enclosure to me. It doesn't make any sense. They're showing me what they're keeping it in. In many cases, it looks good, yet they still ended up with a dead spider. So I do think think that they are they're less forgiving than most of the species one of the things one of the running themes through the majority of the material i put out there is that it's really not that difficult to keep tarantulas it, i really don't that's my big after doing this for years and talking about it whatever that's kind of my big takeaway from it is it's not as difficult as people would like to make you believe sometimes it's not as difficult as people think when they first get into the hobby i think with any hobby with any new thing you do there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be certain jargon you have to pick up, certain vocabulary, certain techniques. But I think it, 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 when compared to other potential pet tree, you know, pets out there, like I'm thinking like even fish, when I talk to somebody, the house we're buying has a saltwater fish tank in it. And the couple that is, we're buying the house we bought, excuse me, it's, it's weird having the house and not being in it yet. So we've already purchased the house. They're leaving a fish tank. It's a saltwater fish tank. I was asking a buddy of mine who used to do fish tanks about the saltwater because I know that's a bit more complicated. And it was blowing my mind what you have to do to make sure you keep these guys, you know, safe and comfortable and healthy. So when compared to other pet type hobbies, I think tarantulas are simple overall. And I think the, the rule of thumb is most of them, you give them some dirt, you give them some room and they're good to go. Some might need some moist dirt. Some might need some dry dirt. Give them all water dishes, feed them. You're again, you're good to go. They're, they're not difficult to keep. They're clean animals. They're hardy animals. However, I do think the Caribbean Versicolor is one of those ones that is a little more tricky. And I, I don't like saying this only because again, I, I also believe 
that some of the issues people have with them is that uncertainty about which advice to follow. I think what ends up happening is that folks pick them up, they start keeping them dry, they're not used to keeping spiders, they see something that they don't understand, and they think the spider's sick or ill. And then they start erring on the side of what they believe is caution by changing their husbandry. So for example, I had one individual contact me, say he picked it up, he had it set up correctly, put holes all around the side enclosure, anchor points, it was webbing, he was doing great. And then he noticed it sitting out there and it looked kind of lethargic. And he was worried and he's like, I think it's it's dehydrated. So what he did was he moistened, went to moisten down the su- substrate, he moistened it down way too much, he created a dank enclosure, next thing you know it, he had a sick Caribbean versicolor. This was somebody that went against probably the good husbandry to, you know, try to change something like, oh gosh, you panic. You, I get it. You panic. And I had the same thing when I had mine the first time that there were points where I'd be like, should I moisten the sub? Should I moisten the sub? They go ahead and they do something that's actually worse for the spider. Now, in this case, what happened was the spider didn't look good. I convinced him to put it into something, you know, dry it out, get into something dry. Well, guess what? A week later, it molted. So it was in pre-molt. So he saw pre-molt, didn't recognize it, thought the lethargy was the spider being ill. He thought it was due to the fact that it was dehydrated, changed up the husbandry. That could have easily have led to a dead spider. So I do think some of the problem with these guys is people freak out. They hear all this stuff. And I feel like now that I'm doing this podcast that I shouldn't because I'm going to contribute to it. But hopefully I'll be able to back it up with some stuff that'll make people feel more secure keeping them. But they hear this kind of stuff. They get one and then they start freaking out. Just like me. It happened to me. I That's why I share that story in the beginning because I'm right there with you guys as far as having Having been in that situation where I'd heard so much about them being difficult to keep, so much about them just spontaneously dying and killing over, that I was second guessing everything I did. I mean, it was it wasn't until my spider probably hit the three inch mark where she got her adult colors, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I might actually pull this off. But the whole time I had, like, I was legitimately convinced I was going to kill her with my inexperience. It was not a comfortable situation. It was not a good time for me in the hobby because. It was like you bought it, and then I'm like, I'm going to kill this poor animal. So I get it, and I think that there, that inexperience, that indecision when it comes time to like make changes because you think something's wrong, that there contributes to a lot of the unnecessary deaths. So as a result, I'm a little reluctant to do, you know, to say what I've just been saying because I know somebody's going to say, oh, look, Tom Moran said they're difficult. No, I think, again, we're still caught in this trap of just not feeling confident enough in our information or some people not feeling confident enough in the information they receive to set them up and keep them and maintain them properly. Again, when you go out there and do a search for Caribbean Versicol, I'm not sure I'd even look up but what comes up. But you never know whose care sheet or care guide is going to come up. That It could be somebody that really knows what they're talking about. It could be somebody that has no idea what they're talking about but talks a good game. It could be one of these people that just pulls it off from somebody else. You know, We get that a lot, unfortunately, in the hobby. That's the trick of the tarantula hobby is being able to wade through, use those critical thinking skills to wade through the information out there and figure out what's good information and what's bad information from somebody that apparently doesn't know what they're talking about. So to start this one off, when setting the, sl- setting the slings up, a lot of people use the little dram bottles. They can work, but the problem with the dram bottles is they can get very, very, very stuffy. They work great with species that do well in moist conditions, with fossorial species, with slings that dig. I, I love them for those, but I have shied away from them when housing slings and avicularia or carabina slings. What I've used instead are the 5-ounce deli cups, the 5.5-ounce, 5.5-ounce deli cups, and I have a new way of keeping them that I flip the deli cup on its top. I create a little, this is going to be tough to explain, but I do, if you go over to Tom's Big Spiders, I'll, I'll put a link to the cage. 
I showed how I put them together on in a video, and I use these for my Avicularia and Carabina species because right off the bat, expect these guys to want to web up in the top. That's one of the biggest issues is the Carabina versicolors, they're going to go up to that top corner. If you have something that opens on the top, that can be a little difficult because every time you open the enclosure, you're basically disturbing the webbing, tearing webbing out, messing up its whole you know home. So what I did was I took a basically picture a five ounce deli cup. I cut about a half inch rim off the top of the deli cup, the part where the, the top would go on. And then I affixed that to the top, flipped it over. That was the thing that would hold the substrate. So picture, you know, about a probably less than a half inch ring around of a, a litter dam. And I would fill that with substrate. And then it would take another cup, a fresh cup, and put it right over top of that. So again, it's hard to describe. I will put a link in here so you can see what I'm talking about. But what it allows for is for the spider to go and do its webbing up top without you having to disturb it. Now, a couple things you want to be careful with when setting these guys up. A, they need anchor points. They need things to web to. They need a lot of things to web to. This is a species that will web. That's one of the ways you can tell if they're not settling in well, if something's wrong, is that they'll cower in a corner or even worse, if you find them on the ground, they should never, They. this isn't a species you're looking to find huddled up on the ground. That means something's wrong. So, what I did was I put a, burned a little hole in the side of the enclosure and put a couple of leaves in there and then shoved some sphagnum moss on top of the leaves. So there was a whole area on the top you know, of the enclosure that allowed them to kind of create a little burrow up in there, a little hide with some webbing and some sphagnum moss. I also tried to let some of the sphagnum moss kind of cascade down the bottom because you want to make sure that they can get back up to the top. They will sometimes. I've had issues with some of them not coming down to hunt. They stay up in that area and they expect prey to come to them. Other ones will come down to hunt, which is not a problem, but what ends up happening, and people don't realize this with some of the avicularia especially, is that when they get close to pre-molt, they lose their ability to grip plastic and glass very well, and this can lead to a situation where I've, I've found some of my avicularia during that pre-molt stage on the ground because they're not able to climb up the side of the glass. They kind of slip down and slide down. You don't want a situation where your sling is in pre-molt, comes down maybe to get a drink, and then can't get back up to the glass So what or the plastic. So what you want to do is make sure that there's something hanging down a a lot of times what they will do is they'll put guide webs down, which helps out greatly, but even gluing something to the side of the enclosure, something I'm kind of experimenting now, taking some sphagnum and kind of hot gluing it to the side of the enclosure to create a little, you know, textured ladder in case the sling should happen to get down to the bottom and need to get back up. But this trick I found works really well because it allows you to basically not disturb the spider every time you open up. Now, I have had people contact me and said it freaks them out because they're not sure how to get prey items up there. If you do have a little ladder, a little something for the prey items, they usually, like I use red runner roaches, they'll make their way up there. Many of the, and again, this is one of the few species I've had this argument with people before. They're like, everything will come down and hunt. I have found that some of these guys, some of the versicolors will get up top and they won't necessarily come down the hunt. They'll hang out at the mouth of their burrow. They'll stay up top, but they don't necessarily come down to the ground. I had this with my first one where I kept it in the Jamie's enclosure. I would drop the little roaches into the enclosure and the next day the, the spider would still be up in the top corner and the little roach would be running around the bottom. So I have had that issue before. What I do with these cups, which is very convenient, is when you take them out, I take the cup out. Now, picture the cup is inverted, so it's upside down. The spider is in the top or the bottom of the cup, which is now the top. 
when I flip it over, I just take a little roach and I drop it in there and let the roach run down to that top corner. And usually if they're hungry, they sense the roach, they come out, they grab the roach, it's done. I don't even have to tong feed them or anything like that. I just, they easily find the roach. I have some where they've, you can tell they're hungry, they're ready to eat, and you can find the little mouths of their webbing. You can take a stunned roach and just put it in the mouth of the webbing and flip it back over and they usually find the roach no problem. So if you're worried about them not finding their food, their roaches, that's a trick that I use. I've had people go, what, are you, what if they don't come down? Very simple. Just use a little common sense. Tip it on its side. Right now, I have six sling avicularia avicularia, and I have them in these enclosures. They're doing great with them. They've, I've had no issues whatsoever. When I, I do keep a, just a corner of the substrate, I'll keep a little bit more uh, wet, but I'll let it dry out. And then when I feed them, what I usually do is I drop the roach, and I let them grab a roach, and then I gently mist the webbing up top and some of the sphagnum up top. Just like you're not overdoing it, not going nuts with it, just a little mist. And I have seen them come out and drink right off the side of the plastic. So again, you don't want to go nuts with it because you're going to startle them. They're not going to eat. But a little gentle mist of some of the sphagnum that's on top of it. I got the fake leaves coming through and the sphagnum on top of it. Miss that, so they got a little place of moisture, and I put the top right back on, and they're good to go. But it's worked very well for me. You could obviously, and I have done this before, if you want to use the five-ounce deli cup, you can use them the correct way with the lid on top. Just know that you're going to want to make sure that when you set up the enclosure, that you put a lot of stuff that they can hide, a lot of fake foliage, a little, pla- a little leaves, some sphagnum moss around the bottom of the enclosure to try to give them a spot to hide under because they're going to want to go to that security of the corner where the lid meets the container, the side of the container. And that's where you run into trouble where you go to feed them and you pull off the top and they go bolting out because you've just torn up their webbing. One trick for if you do set them up like that and you want them to hide as opposed to go to that top corner is when you set them up, place the container underneath a bright light. I know it sounds bad, but what happens is they don't want to be near that bright light. So if you've given them an appropriate place to hide, like some leaves, fake foliage, some sphagnum moss, they're going to go hide and start webbing in there to keep out of the sunlight. That's what you want. It's a nice way to kind of naturally drive them to a darker area so that you can, again, have access to them, easy access when you take that cover off. But dram bottles, I wouldn't use them. The reason I like these cups is they're very easy to ventilate. You can use a thumbtack. I can, I've used, usually with mine, I have an old safety pin that I've taped over the, you know, you've got the pin, I've taped over the other part of it so it's a little easier to hold on to. And I just put rows upon rows of cross ventilation holes all the way around the container. So that way you have nice airflow. Plus the five point ounce deli cup when dealing with say, you know, second, third instar slings offers quite a bit of room so they don't get as stagnant. When you put them in a little pill bottle with a bunch of, you know, a fake leaf and a bunch of sphagnum moss and some substrate, there's not a lot of airflow. There's not a lot of room for the air to breathe in there. If you put them in one of the five ounce deli cups or something along that size, it gives them more room. Now I've had discussions with people over whether or not starting them in something much larger is better because again, it won't be as stuffy. I found that they can get a little lost in larger enclosures. I had to rehouse one of mine a while back because I put it into, I, I moved it too quickly and the enclosure was kind of swimming. It was a new enclosure I got. I'm like, oh, this will be great for it. And it wasn't coming down. It was way up high. It wasn't coming down at all. It just seemed to be kind of lost in the enclosure for lack of a better term. So I think with this species, you want to be able to maintain, you want to give it enough room so that it's not stuffy, but you don't want to sit there and drop it into like, somebody's like, should I just drop this into an Exoterra Nano, you know, an eight by eight by 12? I wouldn't go that route. That's not a species I'd play around with that. Could it do well? Yes, but I would 
think that it's going to have trouble locating prey. That's one of the issues people have with them is that when you set them up, especially if you give them extra room, they go all the way up top and people freak out because they don't come down to get the prey and then they're worried that they're going to starve to death. So personally, I like to find a happy medium. I think the 5.5 ounce deli cups are perfect because they do offer enough space. When I put my, for example, the, I keep talking about the avicularia, but it's a very similar species. When I put the avicularia in them, they look tiny in, in comparison to the enclosure. Like the enclosure was pretty open, but it allows them to grow into them for a little while. And it allows them to maintain that nice cross ventilation and allows the containers not to become stuffy because there's some airflow even within the container. So I do like those. I can other things work. Yes. If you use a dram bottle, the trick is going to be trying to put cross ventilation holes. And that's one of the species I wouldn't mess around. I know when we, we always talk about the importance of cross ventilation and People will bring up, well, what about slings? We keep them in these little dram bottles and usually just the tops or, you know, have a little holes poked in. And that's a very good point. We don't always use cross ventilation with slings. And I think with some of them, it they do okay in that environment. This isn't a species I'd play around with it with. You don't want to keep them in something that doesn't offer that airflow. And so if you're going to use dram bottles, I would suggest using one that's a little bit larger than you might and making sure you can somehow put little holes in. And remember, they can if they can squeeze their carapace through something, they can escape th- through the hole. So make sure that your holes aren't that big. You don't want to get, if you're going to use a Dremel tool because it is hard plastic, you don't want to use the smallest size bit you can find to put those holes in there. And you want to make sure you have holes all the way around. So good ventilation is key with these guys. That's kind of the moral of this story as far as this podcast is concerned, making sure that ventilation is good and not freaking out about the moisture. Now, misting. I, you've heard me mention misting. Misting was one of those things people used to mist everything. And then we got to a point where it's like, nobody should ever miss. I'm not one of these people that thinks misting doesn't have its place. I don't think it's a great way to keep tarantulas hydrated overall, just using it by itself. I think it can be disruptive. There are certain spiders I wouldn't bother misting because that burst of airflow, they detect that with all those little hairs all over them. Remember, that's a sensory organ and they freak the heck out. And that's when you get a situation where the spider bolts out of the container, comes out at you. You don't want that situation. So you got to be careful when you miss. But I do find that it does benefit some spiders, especially some of the arboreal ones, because they will drink right off the glass. You got to figure in the wild, they're going to be out there. They're going to be up in the trees. There's going to be some dew, some rainfall. There'll be some moisture on the leaves, and they'll come and drink right off of that. So I don't mind doing it every once in a while. I just think you got to be careful with it. So again, like we were talking about with the Caribbean versicolors or with my avicularia species, when I miss those, I have a very small bottle I use, and I kind of get the spray. So it's not like a hard, direct spray. I kind of missed it, so it kind of... The airflow goes one direction, but the water kind of mists down and sprinkles inside the enclosure. It's hard to explain, but the trick is not to directly shoot the spider or its surroundings with that burst of air and water and moisture. The trick is to kind of moisten it down so there's a nice little glistening like dew all over everything. And the good thing is this is going to evaporate rather quickly. That's one of the reasons why I'm not a proponent of misting for moisture-dependent spiders as its only way of keeping the spider hydrated. It just doesn't last long. If you mist it, even if you you know give it a really good misting, you're talking a few hours, it evaporates, which in this case is to our advantage because we're not trying to raise the humidity up in that enclosure. What we're trying to do is give the spiders a place to grab some moisture so it doesn't have to come down to the bottom where you might have a water dish. Spider that laying this size, a little Lego would work well. I've, uh, people use the tattoo ink caps, the ones that you use to put the little tattoo in, those can work great. A lot of different things. You want to put a little water dish down there. I think that's the way to go because you do want some you know, water in there evaporating, keeping the inside of the enclosure from being completely dry. 
but you don't want to overdo it with moist substrate. I think that's the thing where people really mess up is they put in a bunch of really moist substrate. They don't put in enough ventilation, and then you have a situation where these little guys just cannot thrive. They cannot do well. Now, as mentioned earlier, a couple things to look for. A spider that's comfortable and settling in should eventually web. These guys web. They do quite a bit of webbing. I have a female adult now that still webs. I have my little young female that still webs. They love webbing. So you want to make sure you give them those anchor points and you want to keep an eye on them and make sure they're doing webbing. If your spider is not webbing, if it's hanging out on the side, if it's in a stress pose, scrunched up in a corner, and it's been more than a few weeks. Now, let's should probably come back to that. Remember, it could take spiders a little while to settle down. So you want to make sure that you're not panicking. You know, I get a lot of emails. I moved into a new enclosure, and it's huddling in the corner, and it hasn't settled in. And I'll ask, well, when did you move it? Last night. It can take a little while. But if it's been a little while and it's not webbing, or if you find it on the ground, that's usually a problem. These guys aren't ones, you know, we talk about Pisolotheria species, Salmapias, Tapatakinias, they all go through a stage. A lot of the arboreals go through a stage where they do a little bit of burrowing and they hang out under the ground or behind the cork bark. They build some dirt curtains and they hide in there. Not so with the Avicularia carabina species. They're right out in up, up top in, in the trees right off the bat. They're arboreals from the get-go, so you want to always set them up like arboreals. But if you find them on the ground, that's usually an indication that something is wrong. Now, as we discussed earlier, they do live, lose some of their grip when they're in heavy premolt. So in some cases, what you'll find is the spider has slipped down, which just means when you set these guys up, I think it's important to try to put create enclosures that allow for them to get back up to the top without just using the plastic or glass. So what that means is there should be cork bark that they can climb up. I've seen really ornate, beautiful enclosures where they have almost like a lattice work of fake vines and stuff on the background, those foam backgrounds that you use in the exoterras, they can climb up those usually no problem. There just needs to be something they can get back up to their area because this is a species that will create a little web hammock when it's time to molt and they will molt in that hammock. The ones that try to molt on the ground, it, it doesn't often go well. So you want to make sure that you pay attention to that. Other times they get too weak to stay up top. You find them on the bottom. A lot of folks pick these guys up from pet stores. And, and this one right now... Caribbean Versicolor and Avicularia are very similar spiders, as I mentioned earlier. And so the rule applies to both. But what will happen is they will pick them up from pet stores, and they'll get them home, and they end up with a spider that's just already been kept poorly. It's not doing well. It can't climb. They find it on the ground, scrunched up in a stress pose. That's not something you want to see with your Caribbean Versicolor. If it's in a stress pose on the ground, that's usually a problem. It usually means you got to look at how you've set up the enclosure figure out what's wrong because that is an indication that something isn't quite right. Hopefully it's just something with the husbandry or the setup that you can fix and that you didn't get a spider that is sick and not well. It happens. You can get one, you know, again, the pet store ones, you can have a sling that is, it, it happens. But that those are things you want to look for, that they're webbing, that they're up top, that they're not hanging out at the bottom. That's a spider that's in good shape. So if your spider is doing that, even if it appears a little lethargic and isn't eating, that's probably pre-molt. Don't freak out. Don't start hosing it down, swamping the substrate because you think it's dehydrated. That should be a spider. That's, that's how they act naturally when they're in pre-molt. So I think a lot of folks see that pre-molt. And the change in activity can be profound. I've had people say it was it was running around, it was lively, it was great, it would kind of dart out of its webbing, and now it just kind of sits there and it doesn't do anything, and it's webbed itself all up. That can freak people out, I get it, and they start panicking. But then, the, again, that's that having 
basic understanding of tarantula husbandry to recognize that that is pre-molt behavior. They also will web themselves up almost completely when they're about to molt, the majority of them. So the last time, for example, my female molted, she went right over to the corner, built this whole web cocoon, completely closed both ends of it and molted inside that. So that's also something to look for. If your spider is webbing itself up in a little cocoon, again, another indication it's pre-molt, not an indication that you're keeping it incorrectly and that you need to change things drastically to make sure the spider doesn't die. Now, while we're talking about them being a little more finicky with husbandry requirements, one thing that often comes up and that I think people misconstrue is they'll say, I I heard these need to be kept warmer than other species. It's not that they need to be kept warmer. These guys do well at the quote-unquote room temperature, which I usually define as 60s to mid-80s. I know obviously that's a huge range, but I think it's misleading when we say, if we use that whole adage, if you're comfortable, they're comfortable. Well, I'm comfortable in 50-degree weather. Easily comfortable, I'll wear a t-shirt, be perfectly fine. That is not comfortable weather for most spiders. That would be a bit low for most species of spiders. So we talk about 60 to mid-80s Fahrenheit or around 20 to 29 degrees Celsius or so is perfectly fine. If it gets cooler, this, this is a species that has shown that if it gets too cold, it can impact the spider negatively. So I wouldn't let this one drop too much below, say... 68 or so 60 you know mid 60s you're probably fine but I have heard instances of people getting these spiders winter comes and the temperatures get a little cooler in the home and they tend to slow way down they stop eating and it alarms their keepers so I would say this is one you don't want it to get really cool with but conversely, it's not a species that you that requires extra heat. I've had people go, you know, I'm having a hard time keeping it at 85 degrees. No, you don't need to keep them at 85 degrees. As a matter of fact, when I first got mine, this should help people feel a little bit better about the temperatures if they're on the little lower end. When I first got mine, we didn't have any extra heat in the tarantula room. It was just the regular room with whatever heat was in there. And the temperature in that room would sometimes dip to 65, 66, 67 degrees during the winter. Not long term. It'd be for like maybe a day or two, but it did dip that low and mine still grow grew and did fine. So just a heads up that you don't have to go crazy if you have a couple nights where it gets a little bit low. You just don't want it to dip too much lower than that, and you don't want that sustained lower temperatures. You could start seeing your spider really slow down, become lethargic, not eating some of the signs that maybe it's a little too chilly for it. Now, as far as growth rate's concerned, I found the growth rate to be around medium. I mean, it depends. Obviously, temperatures dictate how quickly they grow. So we always got to throw that in there. If you're keeping, if you're living in a place that's 80 degrees most of the year, you're going to get faster growth rate. Mine would dip down to, you know, the seventies, low seventies during the winter time now, and up to 80 during the summer. Actually, this summer was quite warm and it was 80 quite a bit in the tarantula room. So hotter temperatures, warmer temperatures will lead to faster growth rate, but I found the medium growth rate overall, it's a beautiful spider to watch grow. They go through their colors, that blue they have when they're little babies is just stunning. And then all of a sudden, boom, they pick up that adult colors and that's stunning. It's just one of the few spiders out there that both the sling form and the adult form are just gorgeous. Just such a handsome spider. As for when they pick up those adult colors, it can vary. I think the last one, the one I have now that was the baby took about a little over a year or so, year and a half maybe, to start showing the adult colors. Once it comes, it's a very, I have a, if you go up to Tom's Big Spiders, I think one of my first postings that I ever put up was mine. I took a picture of her right when she was still the blue spiderling. And the next day, she was in almost the exact same spot in the exact same position and had molted. And you can see the profound change from the little blue spiderling to all those colors, the purples, the greens. Just a stunning animal. But they are fairly quick growers. And the good news is, they do seem to get more hardy 
the more size they put on. I've found that myself. I've talked to other people who have said the same thing. This is more when we talk about them being a little bit fragile. It's more for those little tiny slings. The older they get, they seem to get a lot tougher. So that's something to think about when you get one of these. That it's it's mostly, and again, you have, I'm sure if you go out there, somebody will have a sad, sudden avicularia death case with a juvenile or whatnot. But to me, I would say it's we're more concerned with them in that when they're tiny. That's when you hear people losing. The majority of people that contact me that have lost one have lost a smaller specimen. Once they get those adult collars in, you're pretty much, you should be in good shape unless you're really messing something up or if you have a sick spider. So as far as juveniles are concerned, if, if this is one of those species you may end up doing a little more rehousings than you normally would with others. It, it depends on your personal preference. I found that, you know, they kind of grow at a pace that, you don't want to put them in something they're swimming in, so I wait till like they start them off in those little five ounce deli cups. Then I'll move them into a thirty two ounce deli cup once they put on a bit of size when they're about an inch and a half or so. Again, all uh, ventilation all around the sides, several rings of ventilation holes. Put them down the bottom too. I often forget to do that, and people you know bring up should you put somewhere on the bottom? Yeah, have them kind of on the top, have them on the bottom. Make sure there's good airflow. Definitely a water dish, some place to hide, some anchor points. You know, we do the old cork bark lean at a 45 degree angle, but this is a spot where you want to break out a cork bark and glue a bunch of fake plants and vines to it. Give it some space to web to. That'll allow it to settle in much more quickly. The when it gets a little bigger, I found that something around a gallon or so works if you do want to do that you know if you do want to do the third rehousing when it hits like young adulthood then what i found is the gallon ones like the mainstay containers you get at walmart if you're overseas I'm sure there's something similar out there but they're like gallon jugs they're really nice for arboreal species again dry substrate in the bottom nice big water once it puts on some size you can put a nice big water dish in there that's going to evolve that moisture is going to evaporate it's going to keep things inside that enclosure even with the solid airflow it'll keep it from getting too dry in there for the spider that sometimes you'll see they'll hang around the water dish which means you know it's probably a little dry outside Again, make sure that you give it plenty of places to hide. This is a species that you want to do some decorating with. This is a species we don't want to do the Spartan enclosures. You want to give it a place that gives it cover because what you'll see is like if you put a plastic plant in there, they will sometimes take up in the corner behind the plastic plant and start webbing all around it. If you give it cork bark with some foliage around the cork bark, they'll start webbing around that. That's a way to allow your spider to feel secure more quickly. So for, again, it depends on your personal preference. I do four moves for these guys. That's just me. That's not right. That's not wrong. I'm not telling everybody you have to do it. It's just what I do. I like being able to, you know, carefully keep track of them as we go and make sure I don't give them too much room that they're swimming in their enclosures. But do what works for you. You could easily take a two inch sling and put it into, and this is something I just experimented with the wide diversities I had. I put a smaller specimen into an eight by eight by 12 enclosure and gave it some room because again, that's a lot of room to breathe. It's not going to get stuffy because it's got a lot of extra room and it's done quite well in it. So something to think about. Again, I'm always learning and always trying new things. So don't feel like if you're not doing exactly what I'm doing and doing a little extra rehouse that you're there, that you're not doing it correctly. Not to at all. Just find something that works for you. It's just what I do. But as far as adults, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not the Exoterra Nanos, the glass containers, they're 8 by 8 by 12 Exoterra Nano Talls, I believe they're called. They're the front, they have a front opening door, they have the top that has the mesh. A lot of people ask, are those appropriate enclosures for them? For a while, I didn't use them because the, obviously they don't offer the best cross ventilation. There is what people don't realize sometimes is there is a vent beneath the front door that does allow airflow to go in. If you have a room with a fan going, 
it does push, it will push air through there. It will allow, and plus they have the opening on the top, which allows air to kind of evaporate out, moisture to evaporate out. So there is, it's not perfect cross ventilation where the air can cut straight through the enclosure from the front and come out the back, but there is airflow. I've used them with a lot of arboreal species and they work just fine with them. I, I started using them again a few years back after not using them for a while because a lot of people were asking about them and it was one of those deals where people warned you away from them and said no you can't use those they don't have proper cross ventilation they're not appropriate for tarantulas yet a lot of people and a lot of people that have been in the hobby for a while were using them and having no issues with them so I tried them out for myself and I, I think I have 10 of them now or so with various I have a vicularia I've had a piece Lotharia in them I have a lot of Salmopeus in them Tapanakinias they do fine in them so so they are good enclosures. You will want to replace the top. I've gone over this before. The top is wire mesh. Although it's not, it seems to be more of a terrestrial thing because it sounds, it sounds to me like the arboreals just have a little, they're a little more adroit in their movements and their ability to climb things that they don't get stuck in it. But it is a possibility. If somebody's had an arboreal get stuck in it, let me know. But what happens is their toe claws can become wedged in between the little wire mesh the wires that create the wire mesh screen and it can leave them in a precarious spot where their legs are caught. They're left dangling. They can die that way. They can lose limbs. They can fall. Not a good situation. So what the majority of us do when you flip the enclosures, if you use one of these exoterras, there is a plastic gasket around the side. My buddy Charles gave me a tip where if you leave them out in the sun, a hot sun, it's a black rim, plastic rim, and the gasket that holds, it's usually epoxied in the corners but it's kind of, it's, it's a little gasket that holds the wire in. That will soften up and it's a lot easier to pull it out. So thanks for that tip, Charles. And you can just pull that gasket out, pull the wire out. If you can't get the wire out, sometimes the wire is epoxied and it can be difficult to get out. You can use a sharp utility knife and cut the wire down the sides to get the piece out. And then what you do is get a piece of uh, plexiglass to fit. You drill a bunch of holes in it so it's got some airflow and you glue that in place. I do have to do a video of this. We went to do a video of it. And what happened was while I was trying to pull the wire screening out, it I got stabbed in the fingers with the ends of the wire that was all gnarly and I was bleeding all over. It was just an unsightly video because it was just blood all over the place and we didn't realize it till afterwards how bad it was. So we didn't end up using it, but I do have to do one of the cages soon and I will show how I do it. It's not that difficult. It's a little time consuming. It's a little annoying sometimes when you can't get the screen out, but know that if you use them, you do want to replace it. And then you can put as many holes as you want. You can keep that top pretty much open as far as if you put enough holes in there, there's going to be a lot of airflow and through the front as well. So those cages will work fine. Make sure you give it a water dish. Again, back to the water dishes. Although we're keeping the substrate dry, I want to make sure that people don't get the wrong message here. You want to make sure that they have a water dish in there. If you put one in a bigger enclosure, give it a bigger water dish. I was looking, eyeing, I have my girl, my older girl, and I was thinking of putting her in something bigger that's more 12 by 12 by 16 or so, one of the bigger ones, and giving her some more room and some more trees. And what I will do is if I do that, I'm going to put a nice, big, probably six inch across water dish in the corner, which again, they will not only drink out of it, but it keeps the air during the winter time from getting completely dry in there. Because once your heat kicks on, it does get very dry in the house. So you want to make sure things don't get too dry in there. But I, I will be trying that one out. I hopefully when we get the, I have so much I want to do when we get the new house, but I just can't do it yet because we don't have the room for it. But that is one of the ones I would love to get in a beautiful display. So as far as adult enclosures go, something 3.5 gallons or 13 and a quarter liters 
will work great. Something around five gallons. Sorry, I'm not sure the liter conversion on that one. I probably should have looked that one up before I started talking would be fine. I might even go a little bit bigger. A 10 gallon, as long as there's enough foliage to allow it to be able to create, you know, a secure environment to web up, to be able to find its prey would probably be good. It would also, you know, offer a lot of airflow. I keep the substrate dry on my older ones, water dish, and they're good to go. As far as feeding is concerned, again, with my slings, I usually feed them twice a week more so, so I can just check on them more often and get more maintenance. And plus, I want to grow them out of that sling stage as quickly as possible with the adults. Adults and juveniles, I usually go once a week or so. They will say with my girl, my old girl, I feed her every two weeks. She's older now. She doesn't need to be stuffed and fat all the time. So I kind of, I'll drop in two or three crickets for them. The adults, specifically juveniles and adults are much better hunters. I think they come down, they'll find the prey items if you put them in there. It's more the slings that sometimes have a hard time coming down and finding the prey. That's the only ones I've really had any issue with. Um, Know that one little thing I've noticed with the slings, they tend to be like some of them, some slings and some species, you can drop in larger prey. They go right at These guys, you're going to want to use smaller prey to make sure they don't get scared off. I have spoken to others that have seen this. And again, somebody will come on and go, mine was taking down full crickets. I totally get it. I just always like to start mine on smaller prey to make sure that they're eating okay first. And then I will switch it up. And if they look like they're going to be voracious hunters and take down larger items, I will drop larger items in. But that was something I noticed with mine. And I had two little slings that, like, if you put anything in there that was too big, they basically cowered away and wouldn't eat it. And you come back a few hours later, it was still there. They had nothing to do with it so I just uh, drop in smaller items for them so just something to keep in mind but the larger my female takes crickets I love dropping them in there she'll grab them right out of the air it's amazing now it's uh, one thing to mention with these guys this is one of the species that people are always like mine's really tame I want to handle it they can be very docile they can be very tame but they also like mine my female I would not try to handle that at all she's nuts she would jump she's uh, very high strung so keep in mind they're not all docile they're not all tame again Always remember that temperaments vary from specimen to specimen. Somebody may have the most tame, docile, cuddly, sea versicolor you've ever seen in your life. You may end up with a little wild woman. They will shoot poo if they're scared. That's something to be aware of. So people have had them, but they, they put their little butt in the air and boom, fire off the poo cannon. Also, they do have urticating hairs. They have type 2 urticating hairs. So I will often have people tell me, yeah, my, I, I remember somebody emailing me, and I've mentioned this story before, saying that they her Versicolor loves to be handled, and it basically rubs her butt on it because she loves her so much. It's like a dog rubbing its head on your leg. It was rubbing her butt on it, and I had to explain, no, when she rubs her butt on you, she is, that's her way of delivering her urticating hair. She's trying to defend herself. She's not happy about it. So keep that in mind. If it, you see it rubbing its butt on you, if you get one on your hand, that's not it saying it loves you. That's a an animal trying to use its defense mechanism to protect itself because it's not feeling secure on your hand. So something to keep in mind. But overall, you know, again, I treat all my spiders like they're hands-off for the most part. I, I'm not big into handling. I get why people handle. I'm not one of those people that campaigns against it. But just keep in mind with these guys that you will read that they're super docile. That is not always the case. Both, As a matter of fact, both the ones of females I have right now are crazy. So just something to keep in mind. But Awesome spiders, beautiful spiders. I get why everybody likes them. I get why they're on beginner species list. I don't know I would necessarily take them off beginner species list, but they are a little trickier than some of the things out there. I'm just going to throw that right out there. I know I recently did when we're talking about the avicularias and stuff and how I, I do believe that they are a little trickier to keep. People will ask, you know, should I be worried about them? Should you be worried? No, but I would make sure 
that you're comfortable in your basic tarantula husbandry before you pick one up and that because it's one of those spiders you don't want to be learning on the fly it's one of the spiders you don't want to be doing the oh crud i put too much moisture in oh gosh i sprayed too hard oh gosh it got too cold over here it's not one you want to do any experimenting with it's one you want your basic husbandry down and if you get a sling you want to make sure that you stick to good husbandry and don't get in a situation where you start freaking out about it and changing your husbandry to create a, an environment that is not healthy for the spider. I think that's where a lot of the trouble comes from is that uncertainty. I'm not sure I helped it, but hopefully I explained it in a way that people will realize, oh, I see if you do this, your spider should be okay. That's what the point of this was to kind of, you know, again, because I've had, I think three people just this week say that they're picking them up and they're freaking out about them. And I understand because there's a lot of information out there that can be kind of misleading. It can be conflicting, but this is what's worked for me. I have bred them. I have raised the, the, some of the babies up to adulthood. They do just fine as long as you own, you give them lots of ventilation and you don't overdo it the moisture. You should be in good shape. So that'll do it for this one. That's all I've got. I know it's funny because every time I do one of these where I get rolling on it, I have my notes and I haven't looked at my notes in like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And I'll always get done and button it all up and do my little thing at the end. And I'll look at the notes and go, gosh, I missed this. So hopefully I didn't miss anything. But I think I covered what I wanted to cover. Oh, no, I didn't. I There was one other thing. Hey, um, I have a lot of people ask me about these guys as far as setting up bioactive enclosures. Now, I'm going to be doing an update on the whole bioactive enclosure idea later on. I have some thoughts on it. And I, I won't get into that whole thing because that's a whole podcast unto itself. But here's the deal. Would I set up a true bioactive enclosure with these guys? Heck no. Flat out. No way. Because a true bioactive enclosure, you need to keep the substrate moist to foster the plant growth, to foster the correct bacteria growth, to keep your feeder, your cleaner insects alive. Absolutely not. Now, I, I think I've actually addressed this before. Would it be okay to put a live plant in with one with an adult? Yes, I think it could work fine. And here's why. I think people freak out when they hear about live plants because they're like, oh, you got to keep it super moist. I know I've warned people against it in the past. But if you just stuck, say, a golden pothos in there and watered just the roots or the base of the golden pothos every week or so, whenever you need to, I think I do mine like every week and a half, two weeks, and just pour some water to the roots, the pothos is going to do fine. It is not going to raise the humidity that much in the enclosure. It's not even, I think it's probably maybe when I water this a 20th of the substrate that actually gets moist. I think you could do something where it could work. So my advice would be if you're going to do something with a live plant, keep it simple. Don't try to get fancy. Don't try to get cute. Don't try to put in something that's going to require a bunch of, you know, moist substrate. No, that's not going to be good for the spider. I would argue that point to us blue in the face. So if somebody comes up and goes, oh, they'll do great with that. Don't do it. But if you did want to put in Again, make sure your ventilation is good, but if you did want to put in a plant that doesn't require a lot of care, pothos is the way to go. Water it at the base. I have a golden pothos right now in with my Y diversities, and it's doing great with it. It's, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of room in the enclosure. The majority of the substrate is dry at all time. There's no issue. So that would be my take on it. But again, try not to get sucked into the whole plant slash bioactive thing until you have your basic tarantula husbandry down. I know it's tempting. I know it looks good, but make sure you know how to care for your spider first before you throw in the plant and an added set of things you have to take care of. It's, it's just not, it, for me, it doesn't make sense to get into that until you've got some experience under your belt. But that's just me. I know some people will probably get into it and do just fine. It's just most people, it's just going to be something else to worry about besides the spider. And when we're talking about the Caribbean Versicolor, you definitely want to put the spider's care first. So that will do it for this one. I'm kind of surprised it went on for so long. But uh, 
again, we'll, we'll continue doing more of, I, I don't do a lot of the species specific ones only because I feel like if somebody doesn't have that particular species, they're going to be bored out of their mind and not want to listen to it. And I try to do something for just about everybody, but this is one that pops up quite a bit. A lot of us own it. A lot of us are looking to own it or keep it. So I figured it would be a good one to do it on. And I will do some, I plan on doing a bunch more in the future because I do want to get on, I haven't done a lot of husbandry videos, articles, or podcasts lately. And I got to get back to doing that because that's kind of my bread and butter. So anyway, that'll do it for this one as always if you want to check out my videos haven't been on for a while but you can check them out on youtube i have the website can't wait just for christmas break to start really getting i've got a bunch of stuff going i got a bunch of videos shot i got a bunch of articles half written i got to get this stuff going because I, I really want to get things going again with thomas big spider has been kind of a slowdown with the whole house and new job thing but ready to get back into it so anyway that will do it for this one we'll catch you guys all next time